Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And this week, we're joined by a special guest. He holds the Asnes Chair in Applied Liberty at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, the host of The Remnant Podcast, a three-time New York Times bestselling author, and he's the author, most importantly for today, of the essay, Patrick Deneen's Otherworldly Regime, a review of Patrick Deneen's new book, Regime Change Toward a Post-Liberal Future, which appears in the summer 2023 issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty, and which is available online at Acton.org today as a special preview of that upcoming issue of the magazine, Jonah Goldberg joins us. This week, we'll discuss the passing of the great American writer Cormac McCarthy. But first, Patrick Deneen's regime change. Jonah, as a regular listener to your podcast, The Remnant, allow me, if you will, to adapt from one of your standard questions and ask you to start. What is Patrick Deneen's book about? (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you guys for having me here. Um, I consider you... uh... Um, brothers in the remnant in one way or another. Um, so, uh, Patrick Deneen's book, like I, 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 just to say up front, I, I was worried that I was being unduly harsh. Um, and having reread it, um, I now think I was at minimum duly harsh. Um, and, uh, uh, but also it has been shocking to me having read a bunch of reviews that have come out since I wrote mine to see how, fairly unanimous the criticisms have been but we'll we'll get to that in a second so the book is about he says it's about regime change this is uh in and of itself a bit of a problem for me because if you and i've been complaining about this with politicians for a very long time regime change in political theory actually means something it means changing the nature of the regime not an administration right so when john Kerry says you know we need to have regime change here at home. That's not what regime change actually means. And Deneen should know this, but then he basically kind of punts on that and doesn't actually call for overthrowing the constitution with an asterisk on that. Uh, He basically wants uh, a large number of, he wants all of our institutions to be run with people, run by people who think like him. That's what he means by regime change. More broadly, this book is a sequel uh, from his last book, uh, Why Liberalism Failed. And it's it's a sort of a second installment on a familiar indictment that says uh, the Enlightenment put us on a wrong path. British or English liberalism, John Locke, Adam Smith, the Scottish Enlightenment put us on a wrong path. That modernity itself is a problem. That progress progress is a problem and something not necessarily to be desired uh and that the fundamental metaphysical assumptions of of modernity need to be rethought because he doesn't like the way america is in the first part of the 21st century 
And this is his political prescription about how to achieve what he calls regime change, um, but which is really just sort of a political realignment. I'm sorry for rambling about that. It's just I'm I have a lot of I have opinions. Uh, well, in that sense, it, it sounds like the core of this book then is a very old idea, uh, but maybe not in the way that Deneen necessarily means it. And that what you just detailed that I don't like who's in charge right now. And I would like people either me or who think like me to be in charge, uh, which just seems very surprisingly simple, uh, considering how much people tried to project, I think, into his last book. And the one of the criticisms of his last book being like, OK, you've made this indictment of the modern liberal regime. What do you want us to do about it? And this was supposed to be delivering on the what we do about it. And um, while I have not read the book itself, having read, as Jody pointed out, the numerous other reviews that come out, it doesn't seem like he even very clearly accomplishes prescribing other than people like me should run everything what he wants the world to be like. Right. I mean, so look, I, I did a couple panels with with Patrick Deneen. I got along fine with him personally. I've known him a little bit for a long time. Um, the thing I liked about why liberalism failed was essentially the, I mean, to call it federalism is probably the wrong term, the subsidiarity point of it, which is that he thought that the way you get out of this mess is, or what he described to be a mess is through, um, localism, a multiplicity of models where people got to live in the ways that they want to live as a huge proponent and fan of federalism and subsidiarity, rightly understood. I liked that a lot. And I agreed with that. I've been arguing for sending power down to the most local level possible for 20, 25 years. The problem is, is in this book, he abandons that. Uh, he was criticized by Adrian Vermeule and other post-liberal integralists when he first floated some of these ideas for why liberalism failed uh, 10 years ago. And he's now basically wants a sort of one-size-fits-all form of government under the label integralism. And um, and and so the there's so, in some ways, it's sort of philosophically for me, it's a pinata. You can whack it from almost any angle and get some reward. Um, but my my most fundamental my two most fundamental problems with this approach, is one is the the really powerful naivete of it, um, just sort of the political, uh, the 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 political silliness of the idea that you can successfully via essentially democratic means convince three hundred thirty two million people to agree that every institution in the culture should uh, should share any one person's political uh, and philosophical and moral preferences, never mind Patrick Deneen's, is just silly. It's sort of like, what if Superman could fight the Hulk? It's a fun conversation, but it just doesn't take you anywhere. Um, and and the idea that you can get, so like, it, it just, as a political matter, you know, I think a lot of these guys, they see a crowded room at some university that shows up to hear Adrian Vermeule or Patrick Deneen talk, and they say, aha, this must be a movement. And no, it's in fact a full room um, and not a mass movement. It's sort of like when Richard Nixon was once asked if he believed in the population bomb and that the world was overpopulated. Nixon, you know, reported the reply, of course, I believe in overpopulation. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. 
And, um, you know, there are fans for everything. When I started at National Review, I got the advice, don't get too cocky, because you should know there are at least two or three magazines in this country dedicated to twisted barbed wire art that have more subscribers than we do. <laughs> um, and so there's, just, there's this idea that happens to a lot of young and now apparently middle-aged um, uh, intellectuals and ideologues that they think because they get a little taste of popularity that really this is some sort of mass movement. And I just don't think there's any evidence in the political science literature and the polling literature and the voting, there's just no evidence for it whatsoever. And then there's a sort of the broader problem, philosophical problem, is that America has an actual culture. America is very liberal, classically liberal. You know, it's too liberal in some regards and, and not liberal enough in others, but America has a real, vibrant, serious culture. We have a very different culture from Canada, you know, which is much more deferential to the state. And there are reasons for it, as Seymour Martin Lipset used to talk about it. And in this book, there is zero attention to that fact. In most of these arguments, there's zero attention to the fact that we have a culture that Americans think of the free market in a certain way. They think of the role of the state in a certain way, that these are enduring over time and simply make coming up with a better argument that's informed from Aquinas or Polybius, that somehow you will then ensorcel or Jedi mind trick all Americans to give up their preferences and their customs and their desires. It just makes the whole thing sort of, why are we talking about this? Because it's just fantasy to a certain extent. So there's, I thought your review was excellent. And there, I mean, there have been many excellent reviews of this and the vast majority of them have been critical. And I actually think in the grand scheme of things, yours ends up being one of the less critical. I know. <laughs> and it's not to say that your review is not critical because it is on several points. One of the interesting points that I thought your review was really unique in picking up on is that the book has a sort of schizophrenic tone. And you write in your review, you know, that it's high in the platonic ether or low upon the surface of the Twitter sewer. Um, that this is a book that even rhetorically doesn't quite know what it's pitching itself as to what audience it's pitching itself. How, how, you know, now that you've had some time to read some more reviews, to revisit the book again since your review, do you have a theory as to why this is? Why that this book is um, sort of a rhetorical hodgepodge in addition to some of the issues with the ideas that we've already explored about it, political feasibility, those sorts of things. But just as a piece of rhetoric itself, it seems confused. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Yeah, and so I, and and having had my own uh, motives in psychology questions so many times when I've written books, I'm 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 a little reluctant to get to put Patrick too deep on the couch on this point. But it's definitely true. I mean, I highly recommend my own piece, but also um, the the review at Reason um, um, by Stephanie Slade. I thought covered some points. I was like, oh, I should have mentioned that too. Um, but uh, I remember when I was reading it and I got about a halfway in, I said to my wife, you know, it's almost like he thinks the bookers for Tucker Carlson will only read the introduction. And which is often the case that, you know, you know, bookers for TV shows don't read the whole book. People usually don't read whole books. Um, and because the tone is so strident in the beginning, it's so 
uh, Manichaean in the sort of uh, elites are bad, us versus them stuff. Uh, it name checks a bunch of people in the introduction that really have no place in a serious book about political theory. Whatever you think about Tucker Carlson, I mean, like Kurt Schlichter and, and some other sort of Twitter troll types. And one gets the sense that this is playing to a certain crowd of the very online right. And all of this sort of uh, regime change bluster, you know, including the title, you know, which is boob bait, um, uh, is, is sort of designed for a, a certain kind of trollish crowd that's very online, very attuned to cable news. And then it's as if he's like, okay, I'm in, you think I'm in the clear now? You think I've lost all of the people that I don't want to be more nuanced with? And then so about 70, 80 pages in, it's all of a sudden, uh, it gets more nuanced, which also makes it more incoherent. Um, that's part of the problem. But I also just think the incoherence actually, the, the, the literary incoherence of it, where some, you know, some paragraphs kind of, they're kind of like a robot order to take itself apart. You know, they, they start with one thing and by the end, they mean the opposite thing. Um, uh, I think part of that stems from the fact that the actual idea just doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, at the core of this, which I should have mentioned at the outset, is Patrick has now written two books that argue at book length, by definition, that people of, uh, of on the sort of free market right, classical liberals, um, are uh, that the, people who are classically liberal in terms of their view of the role of the state and the role of the markets, right? Because a lot of classically liberal people on those issues are also socially conservative. Um, that people like me, people like William F. Buckley, people like Irving Kristol, people like uh, Michael Novak, Thomas Sowell, go down the whole pantheon of conservative intellectuals of the last 75 years, that these people were actually in, fu in, in full allegiance to one, ex or allegiance full or mostly full, allegiance to um, the hard left and that we share our sort of political goals and political ambitions and political and philosophical assumptions about the world. And that this new right that he fancies himself one of the leaders of represents a sharp break from the fusionism of left and right that has defined American politics for the last 75 years, if not longer. And that's nonsense. It's just incredibly difficult to sustain as a serious argument. Um, it's, it's, it's of a piece with the sort of the, the Tucker Carlson argument that there's zero difference between, um, the, the two parties on major public policy issues and all the rest. Um, but it, it's very appealing to people, um, sort of the very online crowd, the Sorba Mari crowd and all the rest, because it, it creates room for them to offer something different, to be this new avant-garde elite that is taking over. And, you know, by my count, this is the fourth or fifth so-called new right um, of, since World War II. And, uh, and that's how you really should look at it. It's, it's just a, a bunch of people making the nearest weapon to hand kind of arguments to carve out maneuvering room to say they should be in charge. And I, I, it's very difficult for me to, to, to be deeper than that. And that's why I think it's kind of incoherent as a philosophical or, or historical piece of analysis. I want to get Dylan in here as well, but uh, you just reminded me of uh, maybe and perhaps some of the incoherences out of a desire to have this be talked about. And it reminded me of this passage in this Politico profile of Deneen that came out about a week ago 
which recounts um, a friend of his, some guy named Joseph, Joseph Romance, great name, um, a close friend of Deneen at Rutgers who said, early in our friendship, I remember walking between seminars from lunch or something like that and him telling me how much he wanted to be a public intellectual. That was his goal. He wanted that kind of fame. And if, like in a P.T. Barnum kind of way, like, you know, they're spelling his name right. Uh, you spelled his name right in a review, um, very critical review. And so did everybody else. He's getting talked about and he's, you know, out there as a public intellectual, even if it is somewhat incoherent in what he's actually arguing. Yeah. Uh, so I I read a bit of the book. I mean, not every single word because that would have been a bit torturous. But uh, but I, I did I did see it. I did read it. And I, I did read quite a bit of the last book as well. Um, and and I definitely I agree that, you know, there are sentences that halfway through the sentence, I'm even like, hey, OK, I can, you know, I can charitably say, you know, he's putting his finger on a real problem or whatever the case may be. But by the end of the sentence, it he's either undermined what he just said or he's tried to pair it with something that it absolutely does not pair with. I mean, if if the elite in this country uh, are really this this secret uh, coalition of, you know, the prog- social progressive left and the economically liberal right, we have a party in this country that combines those two things. It's called the Libertarian Party, and they fail miserably every single <laughs> election. Uh, they are in no way the dominant ideology in this country. It's like uh, that, that plot of um, people's voting habits from the 2016 election that I think Echelon Insights did, where the bottom right quadrant is the uh, socially liberal, economically conservative. And my running joke has been I am every dot that appears there, and there aren't many, I'm friends with fa- on Facebook with every single one. One of those people. <laughs> right. Right. And I mean, the other quadrant um, is larger in terms of demographics. That is the uh, socially conservative and economically, you know, progressive. Um, and that's that is who Deneen is trying to pitch his idea to, at least rhetorically. Um, but he's a guy who has basically spent his entire life in higher education and it seems very, very clear that he really has no idea who these people are. Um, so, for example, I am not a fan of of pornography. I don't think people should use it. Uh, it's not a good thing. It's not good for your soul. Uh, the average factory worker probably has a different opinion than me. Uh, and yet Patrick Deneen thinks that they all just really, really want it to be banned. And the elites are standing in their way. Um, this should just be prima facie ridiculous to anyone who reads it, uh, to anyone who has any experience with normal people in this country. Uh, in fact, he's he's repeatedly over and over again, he's contrasting the elites and the people. Um, the people apparently uh, have all the same, you know, prejudices as him. Uh, <laughs> and they're just waiting for someone like him, as you noted, to, to be the elite. Um, there's this kind of conspiratorial dichotomy between the elites and the people. Um, and yet, to, to point to one of the contradictions, um, you know, so he has this like Rousseauan general will of the people, which he thinks is knowable, which also is a very liberal idea, despite him trying to be post-liberal. Uh, but then later on, uh, page 49, he says, you know, Mill's argument that the force of the state is only justified to prevent harm has become instinctively embraced by nearly every modern human being living in a liberal, deci- uh, liberal democracy. So it would seem that by his own account, the people want exactly what he says they oppose. Uh, and he does this all over the place in this book. He says the people really want this. Oh, but by the way, living in this 
liberal society means that everybody is somehow brainwashed into thinking that rights and liberty are good, which I think people just think they're good. Um, and and what they really want is the opposite of that, even though they all really, you know, so he has to almost get to this Marxist false consciousness sort of thing, um, which, again, is just, you know, it might fly in some corners of academia, although I do not find the book, either book, uh, very academically impressive. Um, but there's there's really nothing to it. Uh, there, there's no there there, in my opinion. There's just, it's, yeah, it's a long Twitter thread or a long blog post uh, that, you know, I, I understand why it was made into a book, because people knew it would sell and get a lot of attention. That's why publishers make things into books. Um, I get it. Uh, so that's why he got published. But there's quite a few, there's, there's at least one editor somewhere who should have sat down with him. And, and maybe they did. And maybe, maybe he shopped it around and found the one editor who wouldn't. Um, I don't know. But it, it seems like someone should have said, hey, wait a minute. You know, this is a run-on sentence. Could you clarify this point? <laughs> like, I mean, they're just like some very basic things that could have helped uh, in terms of, you know, his coherence, the the uh, persuasive value of his argument. There, There is like some, like I said, there's occasionally times where I'm like, okay, not in long or whatever, that he's maybe putting his finger on something, but it just all gets lost uh, in well, his academic interests and his very, very, I think, detached... Um, an unrealistic understanding of common people. Well, Joni, you've written and talked a lot about populism. Isn't this, in a way, one of the conceits often of populists that if uh, the if we just knew what the essentially the idea that all of the public agrees with me, um, it is the belief of leaders of populist movements that if if we could just get the will of the public to present itself, they would all agree with everything that I already believe. Right. Right. No, that absolutely. And, and but th this gets at the the fundamental, I mean, I, again, it's the pinata. You can come at it from any direction you like, but the, the, this, there's almost like this literary motif that he wants to hold up because he wants to talk about Polybius and the ancients and the difference between the many and the few. And, um, and the problem is, so he, he won't let go of the many and the few thing. And, I, I, I don't know how to say this except bluntly. Many and few is not a particularly useful technical term for describing a country of 300, 330 million people. Because there are, there, there, to say that, take populism since you brought up populism. Occupy Wall Street was a populist movement. So were the Tea Parties. You can't look at those two things and say, oh, look, populists right i mean because they 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 want different things now i don't like I, I was generally very favorable it was the first populist movement i have ever said anything nice about was the tea party movement because i i thought they were first of all i thought a lot of them were sincere and i think a lot were but um they were also they seemed to be fulfilling that ancient libertarian prophecy which was they wanted to take over the government and then leave everybody alone and that's the kind of populism i can get behind but nonetheless i mean there are different populist movements and there are different political movements and there are different regions of their country and they're different. And so when you try to boil everything down to the many and the few, both terms obscure far more than they reveal because for his schema, the few represents Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz, you know, and, uh, and, and Donald Trump, well, they maybe not Donald Trump, that's a special case, 
but it includes elites, you know, it includes Noam Chomsky and Ben Shapiro, right? They're all <laughs> in the few, these elites, right? And that's just not a very useful way to think about people who are in the top 1% or 0.1% of the intellectual world or the media world or the financial world. And the many, like, there's no, no even pause in the book to think about maybe white rural farmers in Oklahoma who are part of the many don't share all of the worldviews of uh, uh, urban blacks and Hispanics who are also part of the many, right? I mean, there's just no granularity. There's no acknowledgement that this is a big, diverse country with diverse constituencies, views, communities. Um, it's just, it boils everything down to the many and the few, and he wants to be part of the few. And so long as him, him and his cadres and, 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 co-conspirators win all their political battles, he's perfectly happy to rely on the constitutional system and the democratic system to attain power. But he puts this little winking thing at the end. If it doesn't go our way, we might have to embrace other means to um, attain power and get right with, with, with history or God or, or the many. And it's, it's just an indefensible argument intellectually and I think politically. So what you point to in, in your in your answer to that, which was great, is that there's there's a use of sources that's very unusual in this book um, for an <laughs> academic work because there are citations from ancient authorities, this sort of stuff. There's not a lot of engagement with secondary literature, which is very necessary if you're doing a scholarly exam. This is not to say that secondary literature, present day academics don't get things wrong, but it's important to state what they get wrong, how they get it wrong, and make an affirmative argument for why your interpretation is superior. And a lot of the reviews have pointed out the problems with his use of ancient sources. You point out to two very interesting, more contemporary issues with sources. One is that Deneen employs a lot of social science done by the right liberals he criticizes to make his case. And you mentioned in particular Charles Murray, who I right. believe is a self-identified libertarian, Correct. not just yes. right liberal. Um, but then you also point to the structure or at least the tone of many of these arguments echoes James Berman, who is one of the original sort of, you know, ringleaders of fusionism at the National Review. Um, could you explain a little bit where, where you see these echoes of Berman and then Pardon. where you see this this strange dependency on sort of right liberal social science for Aristo populist right. ends? <laughs> yeah. And, and just on the classical thing, um, uh, one of the things you asked, you know, like I missed that I should have mentioned more, done more of than review. I don't know a lot about Polybius. I did know that Montesquieu liked Polybius. I did know that the founding fathers mentioned Polybius. Like he has this big thing about how modernity and the founding fathers, they rejected this idea of the mixed constitution that comes from Polybius and Polybius is so much better and so much cooler and, and great and all this kind of stuff. And in fact, the founding fathers thought they were incorporating a lot of those ideas when they wrote the constitution. And, um, but I did not know until I was reading some follow-up stuff that apparently he just gets Polybius really wrong. Um, and that's not, that's just not my, my, my bag. Um, on, on Burnham and all that. Yeah. So like, this idea of the new class, 
uh, the managerial class, which comes from Burnham. Burnham gets a lot of it from Joseph Schumpeter. Uh, this is not to de denigrate Burnham in the slightest. It's just that it's it's part of this developed argument. Um, uh, it's sort of a it's sort of a Gramscian argument in a sort of right wing kind of way, in the sense that there are these elites that run these institutions. They're sort of captured by these elites. They bend these they bend these institutions to their own um, interest and their own status. Um, I think there's a lot to James Burnham and the managerial revolution that is really, really valuable. I mean, I named my book Suicide of the West as in part an homage to Burnham's book Suicide of the West. Um, but what's weird is he he relies on you know on Burnham's analysis for a lot of stuff. Nothing wrong with that. I did too in my book. Lots of people, smart people do because it's really smart and a useful way of thinking about things. But he seems oblivious to the fact that so much of the stuff that he's relying on to prove his point undermines his point. Because his whole point is that the, all these sort of these 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 right liberals, as he calls everyone from William F. Buckley down, uh, uh, were really in in a close alliance with the hard left. Um, either de facto or intentionally. Um, but look at all these arguments that these people who were part of that project made, and I will use them to my own end. And so he he borrows whole cloth with attribution from Charles Murray, you know, and Charles Charles's argument, Charles is a close friend of mine, um, in 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 uh, coming apart about, you know, the sort of uh, the hollowing out of, of a lot of communities because the elites move on to someplace else. You have these brain drains, you have all these things. Perfectly fine sociological observations. Charles is a very careful, you know, observer of things. Um, but he doesn't wrestle with the fact that, that Charles um, is a soaked to the bone libertarian. Tim Carney, who is a colleague, also a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, he relies on his analysis a lot too. Carney, Tim wrote a wonderful book about the, uh, was it called? Uh, Alienated, Alienated America. America. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful book where he actually goes and he looks at like levels of social capital, levels of, of, of moral capital in various places and shows how that is one of the big problems with, with uh, driving a lot of our bad politics and our polarization and whatnot. And like Deneen thinks that it's wonderful stuff, uses it liberally without wrestling with the fact that Tim, you know, is the most sort of in terms of public policy stuff, the most anti-industrial policy, most anti-big government, most anti-crony capitalist guy at the American Enterprise Institute, which is saying something. And um, and it, it, again and again, it's it's like he eats off the trays of people he denounces, either by association or by name. And for people like me, um, you know, he basically reads me out of the conservative movement, reads Kevin Williamson out of the conservative movement. He uses the term never Trumper as this sort of like bloody toga. That's all you need to know about these people. We can reduce their arguments down to the fact that they were never Trumpers. Um, it's it's a shabby form of argumentation that just doesn't. It, it, it doesn't wrestle with these ideas. It just sort of puts the it, it gives gives people who don't really care about ideas because that's what populism is. It's anti-intellectual, doesn't care about ideas. My favorite line, I quote it all the time from William Jennings Bryan, where he said, the people of Nebraska are for free silver. Therefore, I am for free silver. I will look up the arguments later. And what populists want is they want a bunch of idea-like things that they can use as weapons, but they don't actually want to grapple with the ideas. And Deneen should know better because he is a very smart guy, but he, he just seems to be giving the market eh, what it wants.
Um, yeah, I I have to say, reading this book and his last book, I I wonder, um, and I, I haven't really settled in my mind, and I don't feel good about any of the possibilities. But to me, there's there's at least four possibilities of what's going on here. Uh, especially with regards to his use of sources, um, and we could get into to John Locke, and I, you know, and I do in, in some of my work, um, and other in the American founding that sort of thing. But either he's he has not actually read the sources he cites, and so he's cribbing these citations and the evaluation of them from others, which would be intellectually dishonest, or he read them but did not really understand them very well, which would mean that he's uh, intellectually challenged um or he read them and understood them but he's purposefully misrepresenting them um which would be uh again a kind of deception in a different way or maybe you know the last one would be he's a smart person but he's just fallen into a very conspiratorial way of thinking to the point where you know he's kind of uh, a crank. I mean, I hate to put it that way, but the sort of person that under every rock sees their one theory. You know, no matter what the situation may be. Um, whereas real life is just messy and complex, and there's just so much more to it than that. It's it's a much harder problem. I mean, that's what I like about classical liberalism. It's it's all about like, hey, we have this problem of pluralism. Maybe we should find a way to be at peace with one another instead of empowering one group to dominate all the others. Um, that's because the world's messy. And either you do that and you find some kind of, you know, compromise of peace that people can live with, or, you know, you're hoping for that regime change and you're hoping to be the regime, I suppose. Um, I don't, see it as very realistic. Um, you know, you mentioned the the pinata metaphor. It's true. You can hit this from a lot of different directions. Um, but pinatas have sweet, tasty candy on the inside. <laughs> and there, there's no such thing involved here. It's just not an enjoyable read. There's no, And there's nothing to take away from it that I feel like, well, this is, I can see a really interesting intellectual project coming out of it. I, between the two books, if anything, it's gotten worse. Um, and I didn't like the first one that much. So, um, I don't know. I don't know what the, I mean, this is, it's not to say that Deneen can't rebound um, uh, from this. In, in the journal I edit, uh, there was a long review essay of his first book, uh, the title of which was uh, From Peak Oil to Peak Liberalism. Um, so he, is, he has had a different kind of cranky idea in the past that peak, peak oil was on its way. We we're going to run out. Um, this is going to radically change our economies throughout the world. We're still going strong in 2023. Um, let, let's hope uh, we do find some alternative energy sources. But in the meantime, um, we've got fracking, we've got natural gas, we've got all sorts of things. We're doing all right. Um, and Patrick Denny has moved on to talking about liberalism. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so go ahead. I, I think you. I think you make a great point, which I sort of. I just want to focus on for two seconds, you know, in the same way that he just completely ignores the fact that this is a country with a history and a culture and a tradition and, and mores and aspirations that are fairly well grounded in, in reality. He just sort of assumes that this is all something that it's all play. It's all Plato for intellectuals to mold at will by simply asserting some new idea and that they'll change everything. That's the problem with his understanding of liberalism starting 300 years ago. You know, the liberal liberal liberalism wasn't some conspiracy that a bunch of eggheads got in a room and said, ah, we will come up with this idea that will empower the right kind of elites and blah, 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 blah. It was 
you know, it, the today's liberalism, you know, with our today's liberal democratic capitalism, constitutionalism, these are Chesterton's fences, right? These are things that were created to deal with real problems, like the 30 years, you know, the wars of religion, where people were killing each other over issues of faith. And, and, and they came reluctantly to the conclusion and imperfectly, you know, because obviously there was still a lot of a lot of you know discrimination against Catholics and whatnot, but this I, the I, the liberal idea that comes out around the Westphalian settlement is that maybe we should stop putting issues of conscience to the sword, and uh, that idea, which is sort of hammered out and fits and starts, takes on a life of its own because it's successful, right? It's sort of it's sort of like the stuff that Adam Smith Adam Smith didn't invent capitalism; he was observing it as it was unfolding. Um, and said, hey, look, there's an order to all of this kind of thing. For Deneen, he really does seem to think that, but for the scribblings of a handful of intellectuals, none of this would have happened. And so therefore, if you think all of this was, was created ex nihilo from the page, then the page can undo it too. That you can just simply write a book called Regime Change and get hundreds of millions of people to give up their hard wired or, 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 or deeply held views about what they want their country to be like, what they want their communities to be like, what they want their families to be like, what they want their relationship to the state or to religion to be like. And it's not all one point of view. There's a lot of diversity out there. I'm not, look, I believe passionately in the power of ideas. I, I, I think the written word and intellectual efforts and books are hugely important, but they're not magic. And this is my problem with Hazoni's approach to this stuff. It's my problem with 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 Deneen's and all these guys. They seem to think that words are magic. It's a very postmodern lefty kind of point of view that that philosophers brought all this stuff into existence, and that therefore philosophers can unblink it out of existence. And you have to deal with the messy reality that there are real human beings who are going to disagree with this you know, imposition of new ideas from above. And I, it, it, that's the way it, it, it feels very faculty lounge to me or very sophomore dorm room to me, all of this stuff, the whole sort of post-liberal nationalist, whatever new right project. Um, I Since the ideas are so weak, I think you can really only look at it as through the prism of elite theory is that this is an insurgent group that is, that seeks power first and they're, they're they're marshaling the arguments to suit. Well, it seems also very to me very like action adventure fantasy in the sense that like there's this belief that somewhere maybe in the bowels underneath the Capitol or the Supreme Court or something that there is some kind of an altar that has been constructed and at the highest place on it is uh, a bust of John Locke. And if only we could <laughs> remove the bust of John Locke and replace it with the one of Polybius or whoever, that it would change kind of the order and nature of the culture in the United States or maybe even most of the Western world. And it, it reminds me of, and I know, Joe, you've, you've talked about this as, as well, this essay from um, National Affairs uh, a couple of years ago, but I think it was Daniel Burns, I think it was his mm -hmm. name, about um, liberal theory versus uh, liberal practice. And right. this is a point you were making earlier that, you know, absent – 
you know, uh, all of the liberal theory stuff, you know, take John Locke entirely out of the conversation. There is a liberal culture that exists in this country. It exists for a reason. You know, I, I go back to um, the uh, there's an episode of the editor's podcast from National Review right after the Sorab Amari, David French thing came out where the debate essentially becomes between Charlie Cook and Michael Brendan Doherty. And, and Charlie's first point is like, you know, we we came up with liberalism or liberalism emerged, as you pointed out, as a way to stop us from killing each other. That is the purpose for all of this. And, you know, Michael's critiques are in many ways well taken. Um, It's not to say that there aren't problems within our modern culture, but uh, to to point to this system, which has produced so much, you know, not just – material wealth and prosperity, but the success of this nation, again, to think that you can just replace John Locke with Polybius and change the entire cultural orientation of the society is bizarre and fantastical. Right. And also, and this is this is something that 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 Dineen and Hazoni and all these guys, they they get the history wrong, at least as I understand it. One of the most shocking things I learned when I was working on my my last book was um I'd always believed that Locke's influence over the founding was immense. I was taught in high school, life, liberty, and property was changed to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And that's all you really need to know and blah, 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 blah. And it turns out, you know, so I had someone at a friend of mine who had access to this, who knew how to work the database of the National Archives or Library of Congress. I said, can you just find me all this, all the sort of huzzas to Locke from the, the Constitutional Convention or the founding era and all that kind of stuff? They're not many. And the ones that, I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff in the pulpits that preachers did in praise of Locke. But the reality is, is that what was really influential about Locke was his empiricism, was the um, the overthrowing of the, the divine right of kings kind of argument. And um, the second treatise on government stuff is basically not cited by many. Um, it was his metaphysics that was more interesting to the founding fathers. So this idea that somehow the second treatise is the liner notes to the constitution, I don't think is actually, you know, defensible. And even if it were, you know, I mean, there are people who disagree with that. Um, As Burns points out, um, you know, there's not much about our actual system that is literally borrowed from Locke. Like Locke was, you know, there's, there's no real argument for the electoral college, you know, in Locke or any of these kinds of things. And, um, but th- it's this idea that somehow ideas are magic. I mean, what, who is the king? He breaks his seal and he thinks, you know, during the, the glorious revolution and he thinks, aha, I've broken my seal. Now no one can make laws because the seal is broken and it's magic, right? And it's, no, it turns out you replace the king and they'll make laws without the seal. It's fine. Um, it's this emphasis on the ideas above all else without, you know, looking at the underlying reality. And that was the problem with why liberalism failed. I mean, he hand waves away, you know, the fact that something like three out of five kids didn't survive childhood, you know, in these better times before Locke. And that um, he, 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 he has like one or two sentences about um, how people say women were liberated, you know, because of the Lockean modernity stuff. Uh, but now they're in a greater form of bondage. Um, uh, women today are, you know, women today are not in the same kind of bondage they were in, say, you know, 1400s Bavaria. It's just, it's a bizarre ahistorical argument. And you find this time and time again, where it's just, it's just 
it's it's all that platonic ether stuff about ideas without being rooted in the reality of how people live. There was a guy who wrote last year a book, The Reactionary Mind. I enjoyed it. It was a fun read, but it was all about how people were happier off when they were serfs. Really? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, really? And, um, uh, well, you're getting I, that I on think, Twitter right now too, with that, like Michael Knowles thing about exactly. uh, life in the 1220s being, uh, so much better than it is now. Also yeah, author it, it of the it, one favorable review of Deneen's book that I've seen. Michael oh, Knowles. Right? Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I could grant about this for a while. I apologize. So I think, there, I think there's an interesting larger question here is, is this entire sort of post-liberal project past its sell-by date. Because if you look at sort of, you know, what we now have is, is a very small, very isolated group of folks who, you know, at one time had sought alliance with the national conservative folks, have successfully alienated themselves from that movement. Or um, vice versa. For yeah, know, or, right? or vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's it seems that there are, you know, other than, you know, an occasional, you know, I mean, we have what is essentially a right-wing media personality who has come up with a positive review of the book. And we have had a range of negative reviews from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal. Um, to Reason Magazine. To Reason Magazine. Which I just have to point out, one of the things that I particularly enjoy about Deneen's reaction to all of this is to look at just across the spectrum to see all the negative reviews of his book and then to come to the conclusion of everybody hates it. It must mean I'm right about everything. It, it just, right. I find it amusing. By but that it, argument, pedophilia is awesome. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> everybody rejects it. It must mean that you're right about it. And this is very, very different from the world of 2017, where mm -hmm. why liberalism failed, despite the criticisms that I think we all share of that book, was reviewed very well in a lot of outlets. And, you know, President uh, President Obama... It was on his know, reading list, yeah. Has, ...has a blurb on the paperback edition of that book. Like, serious attention from left of center, right of center, far-right audiences, and now it just doesn't seem like it has the constituency that it had in 2017. Well, I think I, I think you're you're on to something there, but it there's part of it is also what what Jonah mentioned that this was supposed to be, you know, kind of his. All right, here's the more you know actionable, practical payoff, and he does say some in his defense, like he wants it's this weird hodgepodge of policy ideas. He wants industrial policy. He wants. Um, to expand the number of seats in Congress. Um, that that one, I think, is the most interesting. Um, although I, I, yeah, I have my own opinions about, about that sort of thing. Um, he wants universal conscription, um, which is another form of universal slavery. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, and just a few other weird things like that. But it's it doesn't in any way necessarily follow from anything that he said. It's just kind of like a weird mm -hmm. hodgepodge of popular you know, alt, alt right, you know, sort of things today. Um, and, and he does have this kind of magical idea about ideas, right? Um, I, and I mean, you mentioned it being platonic. It is in one sense, but in another sense, it's very unplatonic. So uh, I would recommend, since I don't think uh, uh, Deneen has any desire to read John Locke, if he ever has before, um, 
because his depictions of Locke are, are cartoonish. Um, but he should read Plato again. He should read The Republic. Uh, the philosopher king, the real mm-hmm. philosopher king, will only rule reluctantly. Like this is this is one of the the characteristic features of a philosopher king that if he really were a true philosopher, he would not want to get involved with politics. <laughs> and yet, here's Patrick Deneen going around saying, "Hey, pick me, pick me. I'm a philosopher king." Hey, <laughs> right? Or he's just hoping <laughs> someone else, you know, picks up his book and reads it. Um, so, I mean. You know, in his defense, there it is true that sometimes people read a book, the right person at the right time, or maybe the wrong person, wrong time, depending on who and, and what point in history reads a book, and it changes the way they think. Um, so I don't, I don't want to belittle the whole thing. I am an intellectual myself, um, but it helps when the book actually has good ideas and it ha- is really well thought out. Um, and this is just a very strange kind of fantasy world i mean that that's the best i can think of it and it appeals to people who want to live in that fantasy world or who are currently living it out yeah cosplaying you know on the internet um but for most people i think i think now if i don't know why it wasn't clear before but if it wasn't clear before it's pretty clear now that that's really all there is here yeah so on the on the question of whether it's past the sell-by date i think it is and i think I, i i think it's worth just again we're dorks. We like to talk about the intellectual stuff, you know, and I, I am happy to do that, but I think that the, and I don't mean to cast dispersions. Maybe you guys don't consider yourselves dorks, but you know, this is the world we live in. Um, Preferred nerd. Fair, fair. Um, But like um, the re I, I, I consider all of this stuff of the last seven years to be downstream of the disruption of Donald Trump where Donald Trump was so uh, successful, not intentionally, in smashing the, the, the institutions of conservatism on the right and creating these spaces for people who felt like they were on the fringes to rush to the center to think that they could take over, right? And, um, and I think that, you know, you mentioned the Sora-David French debate. Uh, you know, Sora, seizing on that, wrote this sort of, follow-up thing or maybe it was whatever in the lead up to it but he wrote you know this thing about how trump is useful and in the present moment he is part of the forces of like social cohesion or something like that which was just of course ludicrous right um and um and i think that this sort of the common good conservatism stuff the post-liberal integralism the nationalism um it was all getting a pretty good head of steam um, even after Trump until Dobbs and the fatalism and catastrophization and nihilism of a lot of these guys saying we always lose. We'll never, you know, normal, normal methods and means are fruitless. The deep state, the woke left, whoever controls everything, we can't win. We always lose. And then they overturn Roe v. Wade. And all of a sudden, it's like, huh, maybe the Federalist Society actually was helpful, right? Maybe we don't need to replace it with this sort of, you know, uh, right-wing living constitutionalism. And uh, I think that moment, more than anything else, just that that fact on the ground took a lot of wind out of the sails, a lot of these guys. I think it's one of the reasons why compacts, you know, originally there was this Marxist guy on the board of compact, the Sora Bamari magazine. He had to leave because it turned out these guys were going to be like, 
pro-lifers after all. And, um, uh, and so basically I, I, I think the appeal of this kind of argumentation only can only feed on feelings of futility. And when it turns out that like normal politics, um, can yield positive results, the radicals who say we have to tear down normal politics look kind of silly. We're definitely going long, and I do want to get some quick thoughts on Cormac McCarthy before we close out the podcast. But something you brought up there, Jonah, made me want to just raise this, which is um, the uh, Sorab is an interesting case in and of himself. And I often think of him as like a one man horseshoe theory, um, kind of <laughs> considering his journey. But the you made the point about the the guy, the co-founder of Compact, who was a Marxist who who left. I I understand the point you're making. But I also come back again here to Deneen, and I'm reading the title of that Politico essay, which is, I don't want to violently overthrow the government. I want something far more revolutionary, which just strikes me as just being very much too cute. But when you pair that with something that you observed uh, from his last book about, you know, women have been freed from one form of bondage only to find themselves in another form of bondage. And we've talked about the kind of false consciousness problem and the way that he talks about the many in, uh, I think, both books. And then to go and name the final chapter of this book, uh, what is to be done in an homage to Lenin yeah. is a st- I mean, I want to say it's a strange choice, but like, why am I constantly getting these whiffs of Marxism from this person who is spending so much time uh, kind of berating left liberals and right liberals and I would think rejecting Marxism as well, but he certainly has enough homages to it that I'm kind of left puzzled here. No, look, at the end of the day, um, first of all, there's a lot, it's not just a whiff. There's a lot of uh, Marxist and Marxist adjacent stuff in there, including this whole reducing the many, you know, the ma- the non-elites to one monolithic block. It's very Marxist. And he acknowledges that and he just borrows from it and says, and just asserts without any real evidence that it turns out, yeah, they're economically liberal, but they're socially, I mean, they're, they're economically progressive statist, but they're socially conservative. And, you know, like, he might as well say, and they also have three heads. I mean, there's no evidence for it in the thing, except, you know, a couple anecdotal things. Anyway, um, uh, I think, like, I I am pretty, I have a high degree of animosity towards the whole idea of new ideas. Um, it's not that new ideas don't exist, but they're, they're far fewer of them than people think. And as a conservative, I'm inclined to think that somewhere between 92 and 99% of new ideas are bad. Um, and I'm talking about in the realm of political philosophy and, 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 and politics and whatnot. If you got a, but better mousetraps too. Probably most people's idea for a better mousetrap actually isn't a better mousetrap, right? Just the law of numbers says that, that people are gonna come up with bad ideas first before they get good ideas. Was it Tom Edison said? I, he didn't fail 10,000 times making a light bulb. He, he, succeeded 10,000 times in figuring out how not to make one. Um, regardless, radicalism, whether you want to put left-wing gift wrapping paper on it or right-wing gift wrapping paper, it still just boils down to the idea that we have to tear down the existing institutions and we'll figure out what comes afterwards. And a lot of these right-wing radicals and a lot of left-wing radicals, including Marx himself, 
never put a lot of thought into what comes after what you're going to replace the rubble with. They just want to tear stuff down. And I think that that's the orientation of a lot of these guys is it's um, we just know that the current it's very Rousseauian. The current system is incredibly corrupt. Whatever comes replaces it has to be better, particularly if we're running the show. And I think that's the 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 superstructure of the argument and everything else is just sort of ornamentation. So uh, along those lines, you know, he he at one point says he he thinks people need to use you know Machiavellian needs their means to Aristotelian ends, um, and I I think that gets at a lot of this sort of thing that he he thinks you know by hook or by crook uh, we we got to get in power somehow and then we'll figure it out. Um, but again, it reminds me of the Plato thing in the Philosopher Kings. And if you really are the sort of person trying to be Machiavellian, you don't broadcast it to everyone. Right. right. That, that's like, I don't you know. He didn't, he didn't Look make at like me, a I'm being Machiavellian. Of, right. Like, yeah, Machiavelli wrote a book, you know. But, but yeah, you don't, the people who actually do the things Machiavelli describes weren't like, hey, just so you know, ahead of time, before I do it, I'm going to trick right. you all. Um, it doesn't work that way. So I. The first, the first rule of Machiavelli Club is don't, don't mention that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, before we go here, I, I, I do want to comment very quickly on the passing of the novelist Cormac McCarthy, uh, who died last week at the age of 89, uh, author of a number of best-selling books, All the Pretty Horses, The Road, No Country for Old Men, several of which were adapt, uh, adapted into films. Um, I'm actually reading No Country for Old Men right now. I'd ordered that about uh, a month ago and in my true style have started reading it and then put it down and I promised to get back to it. I really do. Uh one of the things that stuck out to me in reading some of the obituaries, <clears throat> there was this uh, interview with him from years ago. Uh, and it, it just one, I just want to note, a fascinating character uh, who apparently his own desire to live, you know, his own way, not to accept money or honorariums to go talk about his books that, you know, quote, everything I have to say is there on the page, which was to you know, the detriment of his own uh, personal wealth and lifestyle to the point where it, you know, drove, I believe, all three of his wives crazy. There's this quote that just stuck out to me as being interesting. Um, There's no such thing as life without bloodshed. I think the notion that the species can be improved in some way, that everyone could live in harmony, is a really dangerous idea. Those who are afflicted with this notion are the first ones to give up their souls, their freedom. Your desire that it be that way will enslave you and make your life vacuous, which seems like a perfect dismount from what we were just talking about <laughs> into uh, McCarthy himself. But he was uh, the thing that has stuck out to me about particularly No Country for Old Men um, is his depiction of essentially human nature um, and you know, human nature laid bare. Uh, that you know, Llewellyn makes this choice to take the money and all uh, that isn't his, and all of these bad things befall him as a result of of making that choice, which I think makes him um, you know, arguably. And I, I I looked around for this as well, and I found a few people who wrote about it. No Country for Old Men is arguably one of the most conservative films made in the last twenty twenty five years. Um, I, so I think is is a very Interesting author. I'm looking to get into the books, but in terms of the film adaptations, I think his commentary on human nature uh, is particularly intriguing and would commend people to uh, his his works. If uh, if only at this point I can recommend the movie adaptations, if not the books themselves, uh, for an exploration of that. 
His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow, and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says that he will never die. I'm sticking to the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't have a lot to say. I read The Road. Uh, Not the feel-good book of the year uh, (laughs) for any year since 1220. Um, but, uh, um, uh, I love, I gotta say also, I'm kind of with Cormac McCarthy's wives. Um, <laughs> I think, I think there's nothing wrong with going to give a talk at a university about your books. Um, but, uh, no, I, what strikes me just very quickly is the, I love No Country for Old Men, the movie that's in part because I'm a Coen Brothers guy. Um, it's very similar in, in, in a way to Sam Raimi's movie, uh, A Simple Plan, which mm-hmm. I wrote about years ago as being one of the most conservative movies ever made. Um, this basic idea that, which is similar to what you were talking about with McCarthy about the world being soaked in blood, is that there's a very narrow path um, in the sort of, if you look at humanity, um, there's this little path through the jungle, which is sort of bourgeois, morality married to sort of liberal institutions and basic norms of decency and doing right and if you stray off the path a little bit therein lies the jungle and therein lies bloodship bloodshed and nature red in tooth and claw and i think that that's the message of a simple land that's a message of no country for old men in a certain way um when you start taking for granted that the norms and institutions of a decent peaceful life weren't hard won and clawed out, you know, as we were talking about earlier, but where sort of these, where liberalism came from, it is very easy to fall back into the state of nature. And, um, and so I agree with McCarthy, at least in that quote, that that state of nature is the permanent human condition is the permanent natural condition of humanity. But if you can stay on the path and if you can keep people on uh, societies on that path, it doesn't have to be that way, but it takes eternal vigilance and gratitude for what you have. And I don't think that necessarily, I think that's what I, that's what offends me so profoundly about so many of these arguments about how liberalism is the problem, um, is that all of the proposed solutions aren't new ideas. They're just gussied up forms of authoritarianism, monarchism, clericalism, go down the list. Um, with a lot of new verbiage attached. And and I think that's sort of the lesson that I take, and I'll shut up there. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. A big thank you to Jonah Goldberg for joining us. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.